this week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about gays and lesbians in colonial America. Santa Clara University professor Nancy Unger describes the religious, political, and economic impacts of homosexuality and how these colonial societies reacted. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Today we're, we're going to be um, concluding our discussion of African homosexuality and then we're going to move into, so we, we, have t- we will have talked about pre-Columbian Native American same-sex sexuality, um, uh, we're going to work through um, a- African uh, same-sex sexuality and then we're going to start talking about those white, uh, those white colonists um, as in the, the article that, uh, that you all read, uh, Sodomy in Colonial New England. So. Just a little review. Uh, um, uh, you know, why do pre-colonial African same-sex sex acts even matter in 2023? Well, you know, what's the point of even understanding that? Then we'll move on to why would owners tolerate same-sex relations among enslaved peoples? Wouldn't they want them to be uh, uh, heterosexual and breeding? Um, uh, we'll talk about uh, attitudes in modern Africa. Uh, I'm sorry, in modern Africa. Um, Then, uh, was there same-sex sexuality among whites in colonial New England? Well, yeah, sure there was. But uh, what evidence do we have, and why is that significant? What does it it matter? Uh, We'll talk about uh, sodomy at sea. What does it mean to be in a same-sex environment? Um, And um, how is that um, notions of same-sex sexuality there different than in a more conventional society. So we'll talk about pirates and sailors and so forth, the rise of the Italian vice. And if the colonists conclude that sodomy is so bad um, and it's, I mean, it's a capital offense, uh, why, and we know what's going on, why is it so rarely prosecuted? How does that make sense to us? Um, and we'll talk specifically about the cases of Nicholas Senshin, we'll talk a fair amount about him, uh, uh, Stephen Gorton, and that Thomas Thomasina Hall, um, and uh, why those are significant. Then we'll talk about Godbeer's conclusions about all of this. And then, again, why does this matter? Why does this matter in 2023? Is this sort of an intellectual exercise? And I'm going to argue, obviously, that it isn't. Okay. When we left off, it's just kind of a review one of the reasons that I think it's really important to be looking at same-sex sexuality in pre-colonial Africa is that, remember there was that whole uh, quote I wrote to you last time about Coretta Scott King and how frustrated she was that the civil rights movement had not really embraced the gay and lesbian movement. Um, and we talked about there are a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, churches, black, historically black churches, who have also been um, uh, pretty negative on the topic. So you remember this this slide. This was after um, they're trying to get the Matthew Shepard Act um, uh, passed. Um, and, and what was the point of the Matthew Shepard Act? Did you, I, I know we haven't talked about it yet, but anybody just know offhand? No? Okay, ne- ne- never mind. So... Um, the idea was we want this to be a federal offense. We have hate crimes. We don't want that to be left just to local enforcement. We want this to be a, you know, a federal thing. So this minister is saying don't muzzle our pulpits. We oppose the Matthew Shepard Act. Um, this is misguided compassion. Um, and so and we see all these other uh, black ministers who, uh, who, who support this. So, um, so and, and much of the argument was this is not... African. This is not um, something that the African Americans should take pride in. This is something that has sort of come out of um, the whole, you know, slavery experience and so forth. And so, part of Black pride should be rejecting um, uh, this. So it's uh, it's seen not only as a, as a sin by many fundamentalist uh, ministers, but in this case, there's a the whole racial component uh, to it as well. Okay. So therefore. I think it's particularly significant that, yes, uh-huh, Georgia? So just to clarify, the Matthew Shepard Act was 
Catholic Church saying they didn't want it legalized? I'm sorry. Let, let's let's go back and go over this again. So Congress is is passing the Matthew Shepard Act. They're they're saying we want um, hate crimes based on sexuality to be a though we want that to be a federal crime, and that's important because then you can get federal officials in to investigate. So they're saying, you know, we know we want that. So here we see a bunch of uh, black churches saying, no, 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 homosexuality is a sin, and we also believe that it's 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 bad for our race. Um, that this is this is um, uh, something that is un-African. It's 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 um, it's something that out of racial pride we should also be rejecting. Does that make sense? So Congress is trying to say that the black church rejecting homosexuality is a crime. No, I'm sorry. Congress is just trying to. Pa- this is. I'm glad you're asking. Congress is just trying to pass the Matthew Shepard Act. This is what we want. We want to um, make hate crimes based on sexuality a federal offense. These ministers are saying, no, no, don't muzzle our our pulpits. We want to be able to speak openly uh, against homosexuality. And again, the point is this is, I mean, we've got white churches that are, you know, that are doing this too. But the point I'm trying to make here is that this is particularly an issue among many African-Americans. And that was that quote from Coretta Scott King last time about that as well. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Okay, so with this in mind, um, you know, we talked a little, bit, a little bit about this last time, this uh, boy wives and female husbands, um, studies in African homosexualities, and so we see this practice, and we talked a little bit about this last time. So if you become a, 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 a boy wife or a female husband uh, to another man, you're, you're a man in, in pre-colonial Africa, is that a permanent situation? No, no. How long does it last? Mm-hmm. Grace? Until the boy wives grow up and then they marry a woman and this cycle continues again. Right, exactly. So it's almost like an apprentice kind of a, kind of a situation, you know, exactly. And again, this is not something that we have one or two documented cases of. I mean, this is something that there, you know, that this is in many places in Africa, different tribes, um, and as we've decided, not always in lockstep with the same traditions. Um, um, oh, which reminds me, I meant to say this at the beginning of the hour, but I'll say it now. Remember Sean's question last time about Native Americans and if, if you know, if the mother has the dream? Yeah, yeah. So I, I had quite a hard time finding the answer to that. But the answer is, yes, mothers were talking about these dreams, if they had a dream that they felt when they were pregnant that indicated that their child might be one of those, you know, uh, um, all those different terms that, that, you know, that we use. But that wasn't a guarantee. That didn't mean if a, if a child was having dreams, that also was not a guarantee. Um, but they were discussed, which is what your question was. Okay, sorry, I got a little off, the, off track there. All right, so... What's important for us is that we know that there is um, same-sex sexuality going on in pre-colonial Africa, and it's not this rare, secret, you know, hidden thing. This is part of the African tradition, and this matters when we get to the diaspora or the dispersal. So when Africans are, um, uh, you know, forcibly taken uh, and sent th- throughout the world, this is part of their tradition, just like the Native American tr- traditions that we talked about last time. So this idea that, this, that any kind of same-sex sexuality is un-African is just not understanding history. All right. um, okay, so what I want us to get into next is... Um, Remember we talked about those plantation books last time, and so we see all kinds of, we learn a lot about um, uh, these plantation owners and their attitudes about slavery and so forth from, from these books. And one of the things that, uh, that we see is there is certainly recognition of um, same-sex sexuality among the people that they have enslaved. And I want to emphasize that we're talking about the earliest colonial period now. Okay, we're not talking about right before the Civil War, the 1800s. We're talking about, you know, in the 1600s. We're we're, we're talking in the early colonial um, uh, 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 period. Um, So we what what was surprising to me in reading some of these is how much sort of you know they're 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 recognizing 
that they're, that male slaves, enslaved people are having sex with other male enslaved people. And they're not outraged about it. They're sort of commenting on, on this. So I wanted to ask you about this because you might think, well, number one, why would they be tolerant if this is, you know, a Christian uh, society? Um, and also, wouldn't you think that people who are owning enslaved, you know, peoples would want a lot of heterosexual activity? Why? For reproduction, yeah. I mean, uh, to buy uh, enslaved people is, you know, it, 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 it's very, very expensive. So I just want to kind of go through this uh, with you. Um, so in this early period, the work that the enslaved people are doing is incredibly hard. They are pulling, you know, clearing forests, pulling stumps, uh, draining swamps. So what kind of slave is going to be the top dollar? Who, who do you want the, the most if you're a, a slave owner? What are you looking for? Male slaves. You're looking for male slaves. You want brawn. You want strength. And so we're going to see, you know, this, this is, the, even though they're more expensive, they we're going to see a lot more um, male uh, slaves than you are, than you are female. So, um, so they're simply really preferred in this early colonial period. That makes sense. But then, look, this is a, a rendering of, um, on the, on the um, ship over, and you can see there's sex segregation. You know, that, doesn't that seem not what you would expect? What, what's, why would you do this? Wouldn't you want people to be reproducing? Yeah, Anna. Um, I feel like... The slaves having same-sex relations um, kind of furthers their, the idea that they are immoral people and that they... Um, they're yeah. animals. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. yeah, so you're right. There's the, but none, that, that's certainly true, and we get a lot of that in those, in those books. What, 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 what were you going to say? were already packing in people really tightly so would they not have enough room for like the chance of survival of any like babies produced on board like they wouldn't have a very high chance of surviving or like the mothers for that matter right exactly so it's like okay this is not some controlled experiment where everything is settled and so forth this is such a perilous journey so yeah you're, you're exactly right and you're really getting at what i'm what, what i'm looking for here is that um there isn't an effort in this early period to encourage breeding. Now, you don't have to write all these down, okay? I just want you to really understand how, how perilous life was. So um, these are, again, these are, these are averages, and they're in the 1600s. So white colonists are living to be maybe in their early 40s. Um, and it's lower in the South. Um, there's uh, worse water, life is harsher, and so forth. Of enslaved peoples, 20 to 21. All right. So more than half of enslaved infants die in their first year. That, that's, contrast that with 10 to 30% for whites, and you, you start getting a sense of how hard life is. Of these enslaved children who survive, half as many as whites make it to 14. If you survive childhood, you would likely die at least 10 years earlier than, than, than whites. Okay, so now does it make sense why they're not so interested in breeding at this time? It's like, yeah, it's just not going it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not to work. Um, so in the harshest climate, slaves lasted about six years lasted about six years, and then they would, um, uh, um, you know, buy, uh, buy, buy new ones. Okay, so, um, so basically the idea is, look, if we have a pregnant woman, we can't work her as hard, particularly towards the end of, of the pregnancy. Um, going to have to give her some time off, and in the end, that baby's probably going to die anyway. So, now nah, we're, we're, we're really not, natural increase in the 1600s is not a big, not a big goal. So, um, what does that do to, um, oh, well, yeah, let me come back to this for, 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 for a second as well. I um, also wanted to, to emphasize that um, what, female slaves, what are they doing? What kind of labor are they doing in the 1600s? Georgia? Household chores, cooking, cleaning. Yeah, household cords, cooking, and cleaning is kind of the, 
I mean, certainly that was true. There were uh, black women who were serving as mammies and maids and so forth. But again, I want to emphasize that this is... Um, uh, this th- this is in this early period. This picture obviously was not taken in the 1600s. I've given you some you know some some notion here. But that enslaved women mostly do field work. Everybody is doing hard outdoor labor, and in fact, women, the vast majority of enslaved women do field work often in greater proportion than than men because men are mostly doing field work as well. But because they're men, they're also granted some of the more skilled tasks, the coopers who make barrels, the blacksmiths who, um, uh, the, the leather workers, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not like, oh, you know, if you're a household slave, maybe you'd be able to sustain that pregnancy. In the 1600s, the idea that um, anybody is going to survive this, uh, this hard labor, especially a pregnant woman, is pretty, pretty, um, uh, pretty, pretty far-fetched. So are you all, you're all with me here? Any questions about any of this? All right. So, um, all right. So we do see... Um, uh, you know, a disproportionately large male population. And, um, and again, you know, Anna, you, you kind of raised this point that slave owners don't say when they find out that male slaves are having sex, oh, my God, this, you know, they say, well, they're animals. What, uh, what can you expect? And there's also sort of a, you know, if this is going to keep them complacent, if this is going to give any kind of, you know, um, you know keep them going or whatever, then, then fine. And they can tisk tisk, and they say it proves they're barbarians and so forth. But the point is, it's not just like, oh my God, this is this is horrible, and we're not going to allow it. Okay. So, um, and I wanted to go back a little bit. I'm not sure that we hit this as hard last time as, as maybe we we should have. This is from that reading you did: uh, priest, witches, and mediums, spirituality, and the African homosexual. Um, it was a lot like what we saw in the Native Americans. What tended to, to decide whether it was acceptable or frowned upon in an African community to have these same-sex relations? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Anna? Yes, the economy. It keeps coming up. Um, and again, I think that's significant. I was like, oh, well, this is what pre-Columbian Africa was like. It really depended. It didn't just depend on, oh, it was just these particular peoples. It's how were those particular peoples doing economically. So what would, what would make it more acceptable? What kind of economic conditions? Yeah, Jill. Uh, they were very successful where they wouldn't, the infant death rate was a lot lower, so more babies were viable. And so they didn't need as many um, like children to grow up. Right, and just, just, just to do the flip side of this, which would make it less acceptable? The infant death rate is really high, and they're doing, they're really struggling to keep their population alive. Right, right, exactly. So it has much less to do with the morality and this and that. It has to do with, as, we, as we've seen before, um, uh, ec- economics. Um, I just wanted to kind of, uh, 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 today in Africa... Um, we see a lot of some of the, the, the same attitudes we were just talking about with some of those black churches, that there's a tremendous amount of homophobia in many um, African nations. So here we see that the cartoon, uh, the, the minister, homosexuality is un-African and foreign. That's the idea. Oh, this is a, a Western thing that has been infecting um, African society. What is the woman saying? So, so is the Bible, Father. So... Um, so here's the African Homophobes Club. Um, oh, a new member, show your credentials to the chairman. The house rules, don't apply uh, human rights to homosexuals. Do call homosexuality un-African. Um, so, you know, so again, this business about understanding what was happening in pre-Columbian Native American societies and, and pre-colonial Africa, it's not just an intellectual curiosity. I mean, it, the misunderstanding of that is actively being used to uh, persecute uh, homosexuals in, uh, in, 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 in Africa. Um, let's see. Oh, I was going to have this at the ready. Yeah, here we go. This is from uh, 2014. A new law in Nigeria signed by uh, the 
announcement has made it illegal for gay people to even hold a meeting. The Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act also criminalizes homosexual clubs, associations, um, and organizations with penalties up to 14 years in jail. Nigeria's law is not as draconian as a Ugandan bill passed uh, uh, this month, which would punish aggravated homosexual acts with life in prison. Uh, Nigeria is one of 38 African countries, about 70% of the continent, that have laws persecuting gay people. Uh, The motivation for the Nigerian law is unclear, given that the country is already uh, one that has made homosexual sex illegal. And many gay people were not demanding to be married in a country where being gay can uh, get a person lynched by a mob. Um, so it's like, you know, not, no same-sex marriage, no same-sex sexuality, period. Um, in parts of northern Nigeria where Islamic uh, laws enforce, gays and lesbians can be legally stoned to death. So when we say Africa has, is pretty homophobic, it's not just like, oh, these are some attitudes that we're, that we're talking about. Um, okay, so... Um, in 2021, uh, uh, the Ugandan ban on same-sex marriage uh, relations are, are reinforced. And, we, of course, we do see pushback against this, but it's very hard, obviously, to do in Africa. So, we, so here's the, like, outside the Ugandan embassy in London. Um, so, so anyway, so there are real reverberations for, these, uh, the, the, for you know, this misunderstanding of history. You all with me? Okay. Um, so now we're going to move on to what are the white people doing? So here, as, as colonization is starting to heat up, we have Native Americans. We know what their um, uh, history has been. We have Africans. We know their, what their history has been on this, on this topic. Um, so what's going to happen uh, with these Europeans who, of course, are going to increasingly dominate? So what do we know about white attitudes towards same-sex sexuality among whites? You know, they seem to wink at it with slaves. It's like, oh, you know, sort of proves, it proves our point. What about their fellow whites? Mm-hmm. The reading talked about how there's kind of a mixed reaction where a lot of ministers and high-ranking people were vigorously against it, but at the more local level, it was a little more ambivalent or yeah, let, let, let's stick with the official view first. That's, that, that's a good distinction. So officially, what's the attitude? Yes, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. Elena, yeah. That it's frowned upon, shouldn't be able to encounter, engage in same-sex relations. Yes, it is not, it's not just frowned upon. Um, so here we have uh, five Catholic priests burned to death for homosexuality in Ghent, 1578. It's a pretty clear statement. All right, so it's like, you know, it's not like, oh, we wish you wouldn't do that. No, this is, this is un, uh, uh, unacceptable. Um, and so, um, let's see here. According to uh, Rupp, it's on page 19. And I had it all marked. Yeah, here we go. This is what Sean was starting to to, to address. Rupp says, um, sorry. If the Europeans could not conceive of a person uh, neither clearly male nor female, if they vigorously repressed same-sex sexual experimentations and relationships, um, that did not mean that gender transgression and same-sex sexuality were unknown in the world the explorers and settlers came from despite long-standing civil and religious condemnation and the threat of execution, individuals did engage in same-sex sexual behavior in a number of contexts, sometimes without the punishment that the law prescribed or without even the disapproval of their neighbors. First time I read that uh, sodomy in colonial England, I was shocked uh, by, by some, of, some of the material that, uh, that appeared in there. So, is same-sex sexuality happening in colonial New England among whites? Yes. We know for sure. How do we know for sure? Mm-hmm. Jill? There was a few, like, 
court documents? Uh, not many, but in the reading, we read like a few summaries of them. So we, so we, know, we know that there are some investigations of this, and to even to go back a little further, it's a capital offense in New England. From 1641, number eight, prohibits sodomy. If a man lieth with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them had committed abomination, they both shall surely be put to death. Why do you put a law like this on your books? Because it's happening, yeah. I mean, you know, even if we didn't have these cases, I think the mere fact that we have this law um, tells us that it is, it is, indeed, it is indeed happening. Um, and a lot of these cases involve who? The ones that, are, that, that we know about. What kinds of, what kinds of, it's almost always men are being investigated. And what, just generally speaking, what, what, what do you know about them, Elena? It's usually higher status men with lower status men. Yes, higher status. This is, this is really significant. Officers in particular we see on, uh, you know, at sea. And they don't tend to be, you know, if they're having, you know, consensual sex with other officers, we don't hear about it. Who do we hear about? Who's complaining? The Bim. much younger, their subordinates, essentially. Yeah, yeah, especially boys. The families of, uh, of, of uh, the cabin boys and so forth, they're the ones who, who are complaining about this. So it's like, okay, we have these men in power, and even, you know, even back then, we feel that this is an abuse of their, uh, of their, uh, 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 of their power. Um, now, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. Those, uh, these men um, aboard ship who are having sex with other men, here we've got uh, pirates uh, dressing as women. Um, uh, and um, we have this whole, you know, sodomy and the pirate tradition. H how do we, how do we think about? Are, are these gay men? Are these homosexual men? Are these trans? Are these cross-dressers? Do those terms fit? H how come they don't fit, Catherine? I don't think they didn't have those terms at the time. So there's no way we can prescribe our modern ideals onto. People right. in the 1600s. It, 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 yeah, it just yeah. it doesn't it doesn't fit. It doesn't it isn't quite quite right. And the other thing I'm I'm, I'm driving at here is that you know th these are all these are sex segregated societies. If you're going to have sex, if you're at sea for you know however long, you're either going to have sex with other men or you're not going to have it. Um, so I, th you know, it's like you know, if you're in the prison system, um, if you know, there are a number of if you're in a same-sex community, we'll talk about cowboys out in the West and so forth. It's like, all right, you know, can you say, oh my God, look, you know, they're all gay? It's like, well, you know, it's either having this kind of sex or, or no sex. Um, okay, we don't, of course, know very much about the um, consensual sex. The only sex that we know about for sure is what? The non-consensual, the ones that make it to court. Um, so we, we only, what we know for sure is pretty slim, um, but we, we do know, you know, uh, certain things. All right. Oh, I also wanted to uh, mention this. How is it that Venice comes to be called the home of the Italian vice, which is male homosexuality? How, how did that happen? We know it's happening all over the world. How come Venice, of all places? Wasn't it about how cities developed there first and urban areas allowed for homosexuality to happen yeah. more so than in rural areas? Yeah. This is a huge port town. We've got all people, you know, men who've been on, you know, boats forever, you know, coming in. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to female prostitutes, but they're also, many of them are having sex w with, uh, with other men. And, uh, Sean, you're, you're, you're exactly right that we're going to see port cities tend to be some of the earliest centers of, um, you know, where we would sort of identifiably what we would, might, what we would call today sort of a, a you know, a gay, a gay community. It's just, remember we said on like the, the first day, I think, that economically um, the notion of being, you know, uh, you know have, being, being gay just does not work in, in, 
until these cities come up, until we have this ur- these urban populations, people are living on farms. They live in heterosexual families. This is how they, they have children to help them with their, their labor and so forth. We may have two men meeting together behind the barn to have sex, but they're not going to have a gay relationship. Um, women may sneak off and have sex together, but they're not going to be a lesbian couple. This just is economically, once again, this is just not, uh, not going to work. But with the rise of cities, there begins to be a possibility. If you work and make wages, um, you don't have to depend on having children to help you with your, with your labor. Yeah. Like when she talks about how um, homosexuality activity like mainly occurred at sea, like she said, it was hard to tell if some men maybe sought out like a career at sea for homosexuality. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree? I, I didn't quite hear the first part of it. Say oh, it again. Sorry, I'll take off my mask. Um, okay, sorry. Like Rupp says that some she thought maybe or it was hard to tell if some men like sought like a career at sea because maybe they were homosexual and they knew of it. So I was just curious, like, what your thoughts on that were. I don't know. We're going to talk about this. We talk about cowboys as well. Who chooses, you know, a career that, that puts you, or minors or whatever else, who chooses a career? Well, maybe people choose that career purely for economic reasons, and they see the lack of, you know, for men would choose that even though they would rather have female companionship, and we certainly know that female prostit- that women prostitutes are going to be doing a booming business around a lot of these. So I don't think it's fair to say, oh, you know, he went to sea, so therefore he must have hom- had homosexual tendencies. But I also do think that, I, don't you think that that only makes sense, though, that, that it's something that um, if you do have homosexual tendencies, it's not that, that, that could be an added incentive to, to work in that. Yeah, Grace. Yeah, I feel like the reading kind of lended to both of those theories when they were talking about the miners, because there was, like, some parts of it that was talking about how you had the boy wives who aged out would return for more contracts and to continue work, and then there would be another sentence that would say they would return so that they could continue the cycle and have their own boy wife. So I, I could see it being both possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, you know, I certainly don't know, and I think it really depended on the individual, but I, I think it's both and. Yeah, yeah, would be uh, would be my thought. Um, okay, so um, we do see Venice is one of the first place, places where we men, what we would call today, cruising for other men. All right, you know, so we you see that. How come we don't see women doing this? I mean, certainly we know that there are women who desire other women sexually, and if there are areas in Venice and other cities where there are sort of what we would call today a red light district, you know, where we know this is going on, why don't we see, why don't we see women cruising for other women? and they're stuck in the same place. So it's not really the women who are traveling around and going to port cities and looking for sexual partners. Exactly. Even if they live in those, sec- in, in those port cities, a lady does not go out. It's just not done. Um, so, we, you know, we have some, you know, from diaries and letters, we know that, you know, there is, you know, what we would call lesbian activity going on today, but we don't see it even in these sort of, you know, early centers where we see men cruising for it. So it, it's much more, um, as Charlotte says, women are much more sort of secluded um, and they don't have the same, uh, the, the same sort of opportunity. Okay, so, um, but Rob says this, and we're going to come back to this later, but I just want to introduce it now. Um, let me see how we're doing here. Oh, perfect, okay. Um, Since women did not have the same possibilities for meeting in public places, it is not surprising that most of the evidence we have comes from cases in which women secretly crossed the gender divide, successfully living as men and marrying women. Okay, so usually we find out about these couples, and there's not a gazillion of them at this time. There's a very small uh, sampling. It's usually at death. 
All right, so uh, somebody that the whole neighborhood has assumed has been the man in this marriage dies. The, 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 the coroner comes and it's like, oh, you know, surprise, you know, this is a woman. So it's like, okay, we do have evidence of these kinds of couples. Can we safely assume that both uh, the women involved in this, one passing as the man and one uh, living as the woman, can we safely assume that they're both lesbians? No. What, Maddie, why not? You're shaking your head. Oh, I mean, just because, like, you never know, like, someone's gender identity as well. Like, maybe they did want to live like a man, and if they were able to get away with it, that's what they chose. And you also don't know what their partner, if their partner was completely aware of it either. Right. So why, why, would, you, why would you choose to live as a man even if you did not sexually desire a woman? Why, why would you live in this, set it up as a marriage? Why would you do that if you weren't? sexually desire it. A lot better economic opportunity and a lot more freedom and power to do what you want. Exactly. So it's like, okay, I don't think that, um, you know, um, uh, whether they did so solely for the economics and social freedom that male dress and employment provided, whether sexual motivation figured into their decisions, or whether they conceived themselves as transgender people, we may never know. So, I, I, again, it's what we've talked about over and over again. You just can't make assumptions based on, you know, our knowledge, our, our knowledge today. Uh, later on, we're going to talk more about um, uh, these pass, uh, women passing as men in these, these couples. So you'll read another thing about that as we move forward. Okay. So um, now for, the, for the, the really the heart of the matter here for today, we're going to be talking about... Um, that Godbeer article, and um, so, and Godbeer starts off with some stuff that I, I think I, really kind of threw me the first time I read it. So I want to unpack it with you. Um, this is at the at the very beginning, and it's I found it a little convoluted. All right, this essay explores sodomy as a sexual category and as a sexual issue in colonial New England. In seeking to understand sodomy and its place in the sexual culture of the northern colonies, I make two assumptions that underlie recent theoretical and historical scholarship. First, sex as a physical act must be distinguished from sexuality. The conceptual apparatus that men and women use to give meaning and value to sexual attraction and its enactment. Now, this is the part that I struggled with. People never simply have sex. At some level of consciousness, they interpret their behavior in terms of their own and their culture's attitudes towards sex. Sexual acts are thus always scripted. That really threw me. What does that mean? Sexual acts are always scripted. Yeah. The religious aspect. So, in a lot of our previous readings, it talked about how, like, having sex was also a part of like rituals in certain communities. I think specifically, I remember in uh, some of the Native American tribes, like they had um, journals from um, explorers talking about their uh, religious traditions. Okay. So, so, so there's a religious component to this. What, what else? What is this? I mean, this author, I think, would say all, all of our, our sexual acts and lives are scripted. It's not like you're following a movie script, but yes, there's a religious component. What else? Where, where do we get these ideas? It's a power play, right? So, like, what we've been reading has described, at least in the past, this idea of, like, a passive partner, like a passive male, right? And so, at least my interpretation of it was sexual acts being scripted, is that there's a role that the dominant and the submissive have to play, and you have to stay in those roles to maintain this power dynamic. Right. And, and, and where does this come from? Some of it comes from religion. You're exactly right. Where, some of it comes from religion, the notion of, you know, uh, you know reproduction and stuff. Where else do we... Forget about the colonists. Where do we get these ideas today? Before you've ever had sex, where do you get your ideas about it? Mm-hmm. Is it just like the culture that's around it, what's taught, taught about it? 
Yeah, what's taught about it, what movies you saw, what books you read. So, so the idea is, you know, that, that this is always kind of culturally uh, uh, created. I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about, you know, recent the, the whole sort of you know queer theory and so forth is is really trying to challenge a lot of those traditional scripts. So that's his first point. So I just wanted that that word script really kind of kind of threw me. But I think he means that you know this isn't something with oh it just comes naturally. Well, does it really when you've been learning about it in school, talking about it, you know, seeing it in movies, reading about it and so forth. So there, there are all kinds of preconceived notions and so forth going on. Then the other part. Second, the meanings ascribed to sex vary from one culture to another. Okay, we're pretty clear on that one. We've already talked about this. From one place to another and from one time to another. As we saw, even in the same, you know, the, the same place, it could depend, change a lot depending on economics. And then it says, uh, so we need to jettison our own notions of sexuality in favor of the categories that the people that we're studying um, use. So I, I think that's fair. Um, indeed, we cannot assume that sexuality or even um, desire functions as an independent agent in all versions of human uh, uh, subjectivity. Sex acquires meaning in many cultures only as a function of political, here we go again, economic, social, and religious ideologies. So we're all clear on this. You know, I, I kind of felt like this muddied the water more than it really clarified, but, I, but once I got into it, I thought it made more sense. All right. So, um, since we know that these early colonists say what about sodomy? What is their view? How do they describe it? What is it, Anna? And it can, like, the sin can grab hold of anyone. Like, yes. Is anyone susceptible? Right. It, it, it's, it's not just this, it's those people. It's, it's this sin that, you know, that, 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 can, that can take hold. And um, what kind of a sin is it? Is it one of those so-so sins? It's right up there at the top of, of the hit parade. And how do we know it's the, it's the most terrible sin? It's worthy of death. Yeah, it is a capital crime. So that's pretty, you know, that that that's pretty that's pretty clear. With that in mind, you and I know, and we know not just because we think this is true, but we know from letters and diaries and and other things that are going on. Same-sex sexuality is going on. They wouldn't have made this law if it wasn't going on. It's going on. They're they're literally death on it and so forth. Um, how many people are executed in uh, colonial New England uh, for on the charge of crime of sodomy? Do you remember? Wasn't it like only two or like a very low number? Two. Two. That's what, uh, that's what Ruff reports. How, how can we understand that if this society... So here's what I'm driving at. This is why I think history is so important. Because you could say, look, the early colonists are absolutely vehement on same-sex sexuality. They are absolutely against it. They're clear. Their values are clear. It's a death penalty. That's, you know, we've done our research, and that's what, we need to, that's what we need to know. This is why I think it's so important to go the next step. Okay, well, what's really going on in these, in these, in, in, in these communities? So, um, so wouldn't you think that there'd be a lot more? Oh, I was going to answer the question. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Um, because same-sex relations were such a sin focused and an act focused idea it meant that when people raised concerns to the court about someone engaging in that it was you know oh just give me a little bit of time i'm gonna go to god wash these sins away and then i can be back to to this normal that they're proposing of this heterosexuality as opposed to it being identity focused and sort of making an us and them and so i think so few people actually got convicted and were put to death on a capital crime because they could do it away as it just being a slip up of it just being right. getting taken away by this sin. I think your distinction the acts versus an identity is really crucial. What were you going to say? Also in the Richard mentioned that they actually have to have two witnesses. Two eyewitnesses. That was so surprising because it's like, especially in these cases when they're talking about possible assault, it's very unlikely that anybody else is going to have seen it. So it almost seemed like they were working against themselves. Yes. 
the, the two eyewitnesses, who's going to commit this crime in front of two eyewitnesses? I mean, you're, you're exactly right. That's a real red flag there. So how, you know, how can we understand that? And you could say, well, okay, on the one hand, this sounds kind of pretty extreme, you know, the, the death penalty. But on the other hand, yeah, this, all of this kind of, kind of undermines it. So let's, let's, we have to really think about these people within the context of their times. Um, one of the issues here is um, we see with almost all colonial crime, um, t- t- the, the punishment tends to either be death or kind of a slap on the wrist. We're going to put you in the public stocks, right, and, and humiliate you. Or we want you to pay a fine. Or you don't have to pay a fine now, but if you ever do this again, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to pay a fine. So we, we don't hear a lot about, oh, we'll throw them in prison for 20 years. Why not? Prison is, is very rarely um, the, big, um, the, the big issue. Yeah, Maddie? They need people in the colonies to be doing the work, and so throwing them in prison, like you have to provide for the prisoners, which is just another burden, so you might as well have them out there working to provide for the community instead of providing for them. Exactly. I mean, to build a prison takes all kinds of money. Then you have to staff it. Then you have to cook for people, do you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, look, this is the 1600s. We're just trying to get through each winter alive. All right. We don't we don't have the infrastructure for that. Um, our big goal is we're trying to survive out here on, on the frontier and then and, and to thrive and, and to make profit. So, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not that uh, not that not that concerned about it. So, yes, we're really upset with you. We're going to, uh, you know, put you in the public square and have everybody, you know, n- know that you're being humiliated. But we're not going to you know, we don't have this whole big uh, uh, prison system. And I think that this. Um, it, it, and there were sometimes there were whippings and some other uh, s- some other punishments. But um, uh, so basically, if you're so, if you're either sort of you're going to let people go or execute them, I think that this helps to explain um, the the question of you know you have to have two witnesses. If you're going to go around executing people at a time when you need every pair of hands when you are really trying to sort of eke out survival in the wilderness, you better be pretty damn sure. Um, so I, I think that that does help. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. No, it's a, you know, it's a stench in the nostrils of the Lord. This is a terrible, terrible thing. But um, until we you know, really have absolute proof and two witnesses, we're not, uh, we're, we're, we're not going to go there. So the other um, uh, uh, question... Um, so, so basically, the way I see it is it's more sort of an issue of practicality over moral or religious absolutes. Yeah, Elena. Would it all also potentially be that these people who were engaging in same-sex acts, that they were of a certain status and therefore they had this privilege to not be punished the same way that someone if it was the opposite? Right, Exactly. Um, so if we have somebody who is, yeah, who's a really a mover and shaker in the community, and this is important and is providing employment and so forth, yeah, we, we will tend much more to look the other way um, in, that, uh, in, in, in that regard. So let me ask you this. I also thought this was interesting. What is sodomy, according to these people? I think most of today's sodomy we think is anal sex, all right? What, what's, what's sodomy? I'm pretty sure they defined it as any non-reproductive acts that was therefore unnatural. Yeah, non-reproductive. So that could be women with women, that could be oral sex, it can be all kinds of things. So I thought this was interesting that there are these different definitions. So this is, um, uh, I think it's on your page 53 in the Godbeer. Uh, oh, I'm looking on the wrong thing, aren't I? 96 on my... Yeah. Listen to this. This is so interesting. Throughout the 17th century, ministers were quite unequivocal in their definition of sodomy as sex between men or sex between women. This is what ministers are saying. Ministers did not discuss the possibility that anal sex between a man and a woman or other non-reproductive uh, sex might constitute sodomy. For them, it's more our, you know, same-sex, uh, same-sex relations. They focus on the violation of the boundaries between the sexes, not penetration uh, or non-reproduction. The word for, had for them a distinct 
meaning, even though the phenomenon which it referred to, should they insisted, be understood in tandem with, not in isolation from other sins. New England laws against sodomy generally follow that clerical example in defining the crime as an act that involved, quote, parties of the same sex. But New Haven, um, their, their 1655 law uh, differed, and it's much more detailed, which I think is really interesting, but it's much more detailed. What does that tell you? They're finding more and more things are going on. I know this is a little corny, but it reminded me my kids went to St. Francis High School in, in, in Mountain View. And when we first started, there was a dress code, and it was like you know, a few pages. And it got longer and longer and longer because they're finding, oh, people are finding different ways around this and so forth. So we have the same kind of thing. Oh, my God, there's, you know, it's not just this. It's, it's this uh, same-sex activity. So I think that, that's, that's interesting as well. Um, the sexual acts encompassed by the New Haven law had two common characteristics. Um, each was non-procreative. This kind of gets what you're talking about, Elena. Um, uh, tending to the destruction of the race of mankind. And again, this matters. These are people saying, no, we want you to have big families, lots of people. We got to get, I mean, this, is, this is a going concern. This affects the whole, uh, the, the whole community. Um, so... Um, so the New Haven Code viewed sodomy as a range of acts that frustrated reproduction, not simply an uncleanness between members of the same sex. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Nicholas Sension. And what do you know about this guy? So this is the trial from 1677. What do we know about Nicholas Sension? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems like he had status and maybe like power. He was a high-ranking person, so yeah, he had protection. His status, his power. Is he married to a woman? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. He has high standing in the in the community. What do we know about his sexual activities? Ben. They were well known. Um, one of the things that I have written down in my notes is that he had complaints against him over the course of thirty years. Thirty years, thirty years. This guy has been, has been, and and it's not like once in a blue moon he decides. How often is is he? Does he seem, from what we can gather, fairly often? Yeah. Well, the complaints themselves were few and far between. It sounds like there were people who were like people in the colonies that were saying like, "Oh yeah, he tried to have sex with me." Yeah, and he tried to have sex with this guy, and we you know we all know we everybody knows this about uh, uh, about this guy. Um, so, um, and is he arrogant about it? How, what, what's his attitude? Do, do, do you remember this? Mm-hmm. It seemed like he was ashamed. There was one eyewitness that after doing what he had done went to it he went to a separate room and was like praying that god forgive him so it seemed like he had shame about it but his behavior didn't change so. no his behavior does not change like you say over 30 years we have this uh, this going on i mean i think that is pretty remarkable and again this is why you don't just say oh the colonists were against this and they were you know deaf on on um same-sex sexuality um everybody seems to know this guy's uh, proclivities and uh, if you go online, I, I have such a, I can't read this stuff, but some, some people have sort of translated it into, uh, into English, and there's, there's really all kinds of interesting uh, transcripts there and so forth. Why is this community so tolerant? They know that this man has been pestering um, men who don't desire same sex. He's been pestering children, adolescents. He's been going after boys. Um, why so tolerant, Grace? This was something that I had kept in my notes from the very end of the reading, that what was most important to, like, the greater community of people was maintaining a social integrity and, like, a reputation um, that these early colonies, that, like, they were doing well, this whole social experiment of sorts was thriving, and so the the common people, the people that were not a part of these higher official courts um, were okay turning a blind eye because they cared more about how they were collectively doing. Right. It's like, look, we're, 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 we're hanging on as a community. So why do they finally go after him then? Why do they finally prosecute? If you want to keep this hush-hush. Um, 
I believe it was like one of his, one of the men that he was sleeping with quite a bit, one of his main servants passed away. And so the rate at which he was pursuing other people increased to a point where I guess, yeah, just, yeah. oh wait, yeah, Nathaniel Prond. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, 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 and it really supports what Grace said. It's like, oh, now this is starting to hurt the community. All right. It's, we're starting to get a reputation. Um, everybody knows about this guy. Um, he's, he's getting sort of more aggressive. And if we don't do something, then it is going to hurt our reputation. So, yes, we really do, uh, we really do have, to, have to act. Um, I think it also, one of the things that retarded the prosecution is that very often he was going after the servant class. And this is a very status, uh, you know, status-aware uh, society. Uh, and, and there was less, uh, le- less concern about that. But... Um, let's see here. Oh, yeah. I thought this, so this is the testimony of, uh, of Nicholas Barber. And do you remember this, the, the Nicholas Barber testimony? Do you remember what was the, the key, do you remember, what do you remember about it? Um, Barber described how he knew that Sension had pursued other men in the past and was uncomfortable sharing a bed with them. Yeah. And then during the night he described how Sension tried to have sex with him and then he refused after that to sleep in the same bed as him and eventually testified against right. him. Right, and he does eventually testify. Is he, ag- is he um, scolding in his testimony? Is he outraged by what happened? This is, this, you're exactly right. This is what I was driving at. So everything you said is correct. The court depositions are remarkable for their lack of hostility to the accused, save in regard to his sexual behavior. So again, it says that idea is we don't like these same-sex acts, but we don't think he's a homosexual. He's not a gay man. He's just a man who does these things. That's his, it's their acts, not identities. So, um, so Ascension's uh, evident attraction to men did not undermine the general esteem in which he was held. Thomas Barber, um, who, like Sean said, you know, this guy had really, uh, uh, whom Ascension had tried to sodomize in Hartford, declared that he was much beholden to the accused for entertainment in his house and therefore was much troubled that he should be any instrument to testify against him in the least measure, close quote. This guy tries to sodomize him a bunch of times. And he's like, I'm really sorry I'm testifying against you. You're a great guy. I just don't want to have sex with you. Okay, so there's not like, oh, he's an aggressive, uh, you know, homopho- uh, you know uh, homosexual. He's an aggressive pedophile. Those are just things that, 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 uh, that he does. Um, and as Godbeer says, similar feelings on the part of other Windsor citizens may have long delayed proceedings against him. Um, and then the last uh, quote here I want to read to you. Legal prosecution became possible only when the social disruption brought about by Sension's advances seemed to outweigh his worth as a citizen. So, you know, this, this is a very, I think, it's, 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 to me it was a surprising um, uh, picture. Okay, um, what about um, that Stephen Gorton? What do we know about him? What was his job? Do you remember what he does for a living? He was a minister and his congregation, although it shrunk over time, kept for the most part quiet until it started to become a problem for them reputation-wise. Exactly. So it's like, like his, it sounds like his congregation knows that he likes to have sex with men. They wish he wouldn't do that. But they don't, they don't take any kind of action until um, it's becoming, like you say, embarrassing for the, for, for the congregation. When he finally is caught and he repents, his church votes him back into leadership by a two-thirds majority. I mean, I think that is really telling. It's like no one's denying it. Everybody acknowledges it. But again, those are just acts. He's repented. He's a great guy. We will, you know, we will, we will, we will have him back. So, um, just one more piece I want to add to to this before I move on. Any questions or comments about what we've what we've covered here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Stephen Gordon, what was interesting to me, it talked about the split of the votes between men and women. So, in the church, women were able to vote. It, it very much depended on which church we're talking about, but in this one, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting, like, how 
not that they, well, they kind of, like, tolerated sodomy or, like, homosexual relations, and you needed all this evidence, and, like, it was kind of turned blind eye, but wasn't this the same time period where, like, women were being prosecuted as witches? Well, yeah, that's that's actually a little late of 1690s, but... Oh, uh, I was just going to say, it's kind of funny, just because, like, you know, someone would be like, oh, my neighbor's a witch, like, she does this, there's not really any evidence, they get burned at the stake, but yet these men who are committing, like rape or unconsensual sex like especially with children with, yeah. with, with minors i think the big difference is that you know the salem witch trials that we did in the, that women's history class remember that's in the 1690s things are more prosperous they're more stable i think it's particularly important that we understand you know that we're talking about this early period because i think that's really key it's sort of the economic stability function you know and stability and, and functioning of the, of, of the colony kind of supersedes everything else. And remember, because remember those early witches, they kind of got the slap on the wrist early on, and then they come back later. So I think timing is really key. So it's not like a, sex, like a sexist thing, it's just a kind of... Oh, I think there's plenty of sexism well, to go okay. around. But I guess it's mainly like a an economic or like kind yeah. of need. That, that, of that, that. And, and I really think that the Salem witch trial argument kind of reinforces that as well. Because again, we saw those the, some of the witches who had been, just been sort of given the slap on the wrist, just go home, cooperate, be a good member of the community. Then once things settle in the 1690s, then that's when, when that occurs. So that's, that's, oh, I'm really glad you raised that point. Oh, yes. Oh, I just also wanted to point out the article also mentions that there were only two known occasions in which women had to appear before New England courts on charges of unclean behavior with one another. Uh-huh. So I was just wondering, um, like, your thoughts on, on that. Well, I, just, I think that, um, I, I think it gets back to Charlotte's point that women are more sort of secluded that, you know, men have a much greater chance of getting caught because they're outdoors, they're out in the barns, they're, you know, and, and so forth, where women, I think... I have no idea how much uh, sex women are having with other women, but they're much less likely to get caught. It, they're much they're much more secluded. Would 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 be my response. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. The last thing that we want to want to talk about is this really interesting case of this um, Thomas Thomasina Hall. Not a great illustration, but the best I could find. Who is this person? Why is this person noteworthy? I thought it was really cool how they could kind of switch your sex around depending on the situation in ways that would benefit them the most. Right. So this is somebody who was born with sort of ambiguous genitalia, and this person's okay with that. You know, they, they can be, how's the community respond? <laughs> yes. They lose their minds over the possibility of this person maybe being biologically male, maybe being biologically female, and they get to the point where they, like, actually, like, have, like, a group of, wi- a group of women, like, take them... We want to see. Like, into a private place and, like, examine their body, and then they're, they come back with, like, hmm, has a penis, and then other people are, like, hmm... Does it work? Yeah, like. yeah. There's, there's just, there's, there, you're right. They lose their damn minds. They're very, very, you know, this is really um, very concerning. It reminded me very much uh, many, well, a few years ago, Leslie Feinberg, who's uh, um, known as trans warrior, um, uh, came here and spoke uh, at Santa Clara to a huge crowd. It says, people of all sexes have the right to explore femininity, masculinity, and the infinite variations between without criticism or ridicule. But the story he told that really stuck with me is that he and his wife had just had a new grandchild. And they're very excited about this, but it's a pet peeve of him that everything is still very, is it male or female, blah, blah, blah. So he said they were uh, telling this news to a neighbor who said, oh, this is so great. Is it a boy or a girl? And they said, it's a wonderful, beautiful, healthy baby. But is it a boy or a girl? Well, and they, you know, they kept doing this. And finally, the neighbor said, what did they name this child? And they named it like Chris or something. And this neighbor was losing her mind because it's like, no. And so it was really interesting to me that you know, this goes way, way back. No, we want to be very clear who's what, and that's all there is to it. They were confused or they didn't understand the identity part, but the biggest issue for them was what is considered a homosexual act. Yes. And yes. Like what the legal actions would be then. Right. We want these very clear definitions of what, what this means. Yeah. 
Okay, so, um, all right. Uh, let me see. Let me just uh, finish this up here. Okay, so what are we supposed to take a, t- take away from all of this? Um, the upshot of all of this is that, like Africans, Native Americans, um, we see a variety of attitudes towards same-sex sexuality among American colonists. And as with the previous other groups, a lot of it seems to be hinged in economics. Um, uh, certainly religion, other, other things play, uh, play, play, play a role as well. Um, so let me see. Last thing here, and I'll get you out of here. Um, yeah, here we go. Um, what the case of Nicholas Sension and Thomas Thomasina Hall shows that colonial attitudes towards gender and sexual transgression were complex, shaped not only by European law, custom, and religious dictates, but also by active participation in the community. Law, religion, and everyday perspectives of ordinary people, as well as the alternative possibilities for sexuality and gender embodied in Native American and African sexual systems, all went into the fashioning of new world sexuality. So um, I think this is important for its own right, but it also removes that, oh, the good old days. The good old days of American values when we knew, you know, about, you know, how to, how to treat homosexuality. This gives us a much broader, more nuanced picture. I'm sorry we went a minute over. Thank you all very much. You were great today, and I appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you on Monday back in our regular classroom. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.